Welcome everyone to the Culinary Now podcast, a food pod designed to dive deeper into the topics surrounding our industry. Uh, today on the pod, we have a new segment that we're going to go into um, within the Culinary Now universe. And for this segment, we're bringing in a new contributor, uh, chef and associate professor Michael McCooch, also department chair at Johnson & Wales University here in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Mike, how are you today? Good. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you for joining us for this new sort of micro project within the pod. Uh, and we're, we're, we're kind of titling this uh, new segment Food for Thought. And the idea behind it is that while the podcast has always been really great with doing interviews and talking about really, really big picture things, we wanted to examine the food industry on a more regular basis and really talk about um, a lot of the things that are happening in the news that are affecting consumers, whether that be cooks, students, um, whomever, on, on more of a, a regular basis, even a weekly basis. So for this particular segment, we're going to dive into uh, what is happening in the world of food today. Uh, we're going to use news articles to kind of sort of guide our conversation. And then we're going to provide some opinions and some thoughts based on those those topics. So uh, I brought in Chef Makouche because he is incredibly knowledgeable and he has a lot to say and I'm excited for him to be here. So before we get started though, I, I do have to always uh, give acknowledgement to the fact that the Culinary Ale podcast this season is sponsored by Forge to Table. Uh, Forge to Table is, it offers handmade Japanese style knives at an affordable price. Forge to Table was started by Wu alumnus Noah Rosen in the pursuit of the perfect knife for culinary students, home cooks, and chefs alike. Their flagship blade, the 8-inch Gyoto Chef's Knife, is a cult favorite among professional kitchens. Forged Tables are available at the Jewoo Student Store slash Bookstore, or you can head over to ForgedToTable.com and use the code CULINARYNOW, C-U-L-I-N-A-R-Y-N-O-W at checkout for 10% off your purchase. Forged Table wants all the Culinary Now listeners to know, have a knife Day. I miss Jamie when she usually says that. But um, so thank you to Force the Table for sponsoring this podcast. So, Chef McCooch, Mike, first thing I want to talk about, and this is just on my mind right now, is you know, we have the holiday season among us. Hanukkah just ended. We're now sort of in the in the meat of this ramp up to Christmas. And uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm only thinking about right now is buying holiday gifts and getting them here on time, not only for my family, my kids, but also my friends. And I think this is a perfect sort of launching, you know, point for our, for our little segment here, because cooking gadgets or kitchen gifts are always a go-to for me personally, when it comes to the holiday season, I'm not sure about you. And I figured this would be a cool sort of intro, nice light conversation to talk about what are some of the best holiday kitchen gifts to get the emerging cook, the seasoned veteran in the kitchen, uh, who, who, what have you. So um, what's on your shopping list when it comes to food, kitchen, holiday gifts this year, Mike? Yeah, well, uh, so I, 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 you know, topping my list is, uh, especially for, for new, uh, new chefs and cooks uh, just starting out in the industry, um, you know, sharpening stones are, you know, really a key, I think, um, you know, for me anyway, it's important to keep those tools uh, in good working order and keeping those knives uh, nice and uh, nice and sharp. Uh, so, you know, I would definitely highly recommend getting um, some sharpening stones. And there's a variety of different uh, sharpening stones to choose from. 
um, you know, depending on personal preference or whatnot. And they range in grit. Um, so, you know, I like to go anywhere between, you know, 700 all the way up to 2000 grit, which would be a, which would be a polish um, and kind of finishing. Um, so, I mean, sharpening stone is definitely going to be, um, you know, one of my first stops or go-tos um, for a new emerging uh, chef. What I actually think, think, that, uh, I think that's a good idea too, because, you know, a lot of people when they're first getting started don't have a knife kit with all these really, really high-end knives. And I, I, even myself, when I first, you know, got out of school and moved to an apartment, I had like one of those generic sort of uh, kitchen knife sets and, you know, they got dull pretty often. So I think a stone is a good way to sort of prolong the life of those. Um those, those sort of introductory tools and to keep their edges sharp so that you don't cut yourself. So I think that's a really good tip, Mike. What else? Uh, so, you know, I, the other, the other piece of equipment that I uh, tend to go on uh, is, you know, a good cast iron pan. And this is something that'll it'll last you a lifetime. Um, and, uh, you know, if you treat it right and you keep it uh, well seasoned, um, you're going to have that cast iron pan forever. So it will uh, definitely serve you well. Uh, and there's nothing like, you know, if you're doing a pan sear, a good, well-seasoned cast iron pan is just perfect uh, for, uh, for that application. So let's, let's, let's stop for a minute. Let's dive in. Because both of those things that you talked about, sharpening stones, you mentioned the grit. You know, I don't know, is, is 600 to 2,000 or something, is that kind of like thread count? How, what, what does that mean? Can you go into a little more detail? Like when you're starting out, you said the higher the number is more like a polish, the lower the number is more coarse. Um, I know that there are a bunch of stones out there that people are looking for. There's, you know, one-sided, two-sided, three-sided tri-stones. What do you think is the best introductory? Do people need three sides when they're just getting started? Uh, so you, you do need you do need a range. I don't necessarily know if you need to go with uh, you know a traditional tri stone with the housing and everything else. Um, if you're just getting started, you know those typically because you have a housing that uh, is typically made out of metal, uh, you would use a mineral oil um, in order to reduce the friction uh, when you're sharpening uh, that uh, that knife. Uh, that grit is, you know, referring to, think of it more like sandpaper, uh, right? So how coarse uh, that stone is going to be. Um, and the larger the number, the finer the grit becomes. Uh, and um, the more um, what we call polishing. Uh, so the uh, removes any of those little tiny burrs. Um, so uh, as you start to uh, sharpen that, that knife, that can happen. And depending on how dull your knife gets, you may not always go with like, you know, a 700 grit, uh, which is fairly coarse. So you might not always start with a coarse grit. You might go with a medium um, uh, grit. So a lot of times when you go sharpening for these, uh, when you go shopping for these uh, sharpening stones, you'll, you'll see that, um, you know, depending on your wet stones, for instance, uh, usually uh, one stone contains two grit side. Uh, so, uh, and in those cases, you're using water. Uh, to help reduce the uh, ref, uh, friction. Uh, so it can be a good stone to, um, you know, serves your purpose really well. Um, there's a little less uh, maintenance on those, uh, on those water stones. Um, you don't need the mineral oil uh, either. So, uh, but really it's going to be whatever you're comfortable with and, you know, do a little bit of research as far as 
uh, you know, price points and whatnot. But that's what that grid is uh, referring to, you know, how coarse that stone is. And I think you want a good range. So you generally want, you know, coarse, more of a medium uh, type uh, type grit. And then I would definitely go with a, with a polish. And that's important to know because, like, I think some people might be intimidated when they're, you know, doing research. You know, I just typed in sharpening stones for knives to, you know, the good old uh, computer. And, you know, the price range just that comes up in the initial search is intimidating. Like, there are some stones that are 30 bucks, but then there's some that are $150, $200. And you might fall into a trap that you think that the more expensive is, is the way you need to go because it's going to be a better result for your knife. And I think that it's important to tell, especially those people that maybe are just getting into sharpening their own knives and into purchasing their own stone, that, you know, spending upwards of, you know, or any more than $50 in that first purchase is probably unneeded. I think that especially, Mike, based on what you said, two sides comes with most sharpening stones. Get something that's basic that allows you to sort of make mistakes along the way. You're not going to really hurt the stone. You're going to have it help your knife. I think that that's a good price point to stay within. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. So, um, you know, and remember, you're just getting started. So you don't need anything uh, at this point, you know, super, super fancy. Um, you know, as you start to gain a little bit more experience and you go into uh, maybe some of those uh, Japanese style knives that may go all the way up to 8,000 grit, um, you know, stones and, you know, used for, you know, sushi, for instance. Um, you know, then you can start to experiment a little bit more with the, with the, with the higher end. But for now, if you're just looking to, you know, keep a utility knife uh, that you use on a regular basis, really hone your skills, um, you know, I would recommend, you know, you know, just getting started in that $50 range. And that'll serve you very, very well uh, as you uh, as you just start out. Now, you mentioned something else, which was a cast iron skillet. And I, I 100% agree with this purchase. I think that this is something that every kitchen needs because it is so versatile. It is so resilient. But that comes with a caveat because there are a lot of people, and I'm not necessarily talking about the Johnson Wales community or our students, or there are a lot of cooks that, may not know how to properly maintain those pans. So, you know, this purchase, while incredibly important, is going to put you above $50, um, most definitely. I mean, they're, they're, they're north of 100 especially when you get into some of the more reputable ones. And if you're going to invest that type of money, not only for yourself, but for someone else, you want to know how to maintain it. So, Chef, what are some really good tips as far as like, you know, best practice on maintaining your cast iron skillet once you've invested in it? Yeah. So, you know, it's a great question and good point. So, you know, the maintenance of the cast iron pan uh, does take a little bit of additional uh, care. So this is not, uh, you know, a pan that you want to just throw into a dish sink and, you know, uh, <laughs> let, uh, let rust away um, because it is porous, it will rust. Uh, so, um, so it is something that you need to take care of, you know, and have uh, real close attention to detail. And you really kind of form a connection with that pan. I think the more you kind of maintain it, right? So it does uh, become part. Really, it becomes part of the family. It really does. It does. It really does become part of the family, you know. Uh, and it's something I, I use my my grandfather's cast iron pan. Yeah, hand uh, down is what I use. You know, and uh, they're perfect. You know, they have. You know, they'll get their little hot spots in uh, in certain areas uh, that uh, you get used to on uh, on how to on how to manage uh, the heat and the heat transfer of those uh, of those pans. Um, but to care for them is actually fairly uh, simple. You know, so there's some basic rules. 
so because cast iron will uh, will rust, um, it, they oftentimes will come pre-seasoned, um, which simply means they, they have uh, a little bit of uh, oil uh, treatment where the oil is actually pulmerized uh, on, the, uh, on the pan. Uh, and that's due uh, to heat treating uh, the pan and the, uh, and the oil together. Um, and really forms a really nice nonstick uh, surface for you. Um, now, I think the biggest mistake that people make oftentimes with, uh, with cast iron pans is after they get done using it, even if it's a light use, uh, they feel like they have to wash it with you know heavy detergent or whatnot. And, and that is going to just remove and strip, I know, right? All of that oil completely off of the, uh, off of the surface of that pan. Um, so definitely not recommended. Stay away from any of those heavy detergents. A little bit, you know, if it does get uh, really soiled, uh, a little bit of water, uh, and then you want to dry it really well. Um, and then the way you dry it is because it's porous, it'll even hold on uh, to uh, excess uh, moisture within those pores, uh, is you want to heat it back up again. Uh, so, and then you want to put a little bit of oil once the, once the pan gets hot. So you'll start to see it. You bring it just uh, below to the, uh, to the smoke point. Uh, so the pan gets nice and hot, uh, and then you use a little bit of, uh, of oil to uh, uh, rub over that uh, pan. And that oil will heat up and pulmerize. And then, of course, before you use it, you always want to go through that seasoning step again. Yep. Uh, and that, that, that adds a nice fresh coat of oil to the, uh, to the pan. It's a very thin layer, and that helps to create that uh, non-stick surface. Uh, so uh, nothing will get uh, stuck to it. Um, so... It's 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 just a good kind of care maintenance, and you don't have to wash them all the time, right? If you're just using it for light use, then you know you're good to go. Just wipe it clean, um, yeah. and uh, and you're good for the next uh, for the next use. Uh, so dry paper towel, and you're good to go. I, I think it can be really intimidating because I think we we're we're trained, you know, specifically after this past couple of years to sanitize and clean everything, and 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 that really can be a downfall to cast iron. And and I I'm kind of on the complete, like, op not opposite side, but I'm on like the far end of the spectrum. Where I will say that, you know, the, no soap should ever touch a cast iron pan because it does have this uh, ability to rust the pan really easily. So what I'll do, and, you know, for people that are listening that are really, you know, food safety conscious, you're probably cringing, but I'll use salt to help really, you know, sort of remove any debris and then to wash out with water and then reheat to maybe sort of sterilize or kill any of the resilient bacteria that might be there, which is a really sort of unique approach when it comes to using a pan and to cleaning it and to sustaining it. But cast iron is so delicate when it comes to rust. I, I think that it's important to note that soap can be an enemy to that. Um, you just want to be really careful not to put yourself in a position where you could get someone sick. So use soap loosely when you have to, but I like your idea of reseasoning into into using water when when possible because it helps prolong the life of the pan. It really is a little it's a little gremlin, right? So you don't <laughs> want to get them wet. <laughs> yeah, and, and never put it in the dishwasher. I, I, I swear that there are people that probably put that like they put saute pans and, and other pans in their dishwasher because it's convenient, which I appreciate the convenience. But this if you put it in the dishwasher, it is a kiss of death for uh for your, your newly uh, anointed expensive cast iron pan. Moving on a little bit, you know, I always, I always find, and this is just maybe a little bit personal for me, like I love receiving cookbooks as a gift. I think that, you know, not only because I collect them, but because I think that it's really um, a great way to capture 
the, the current moment in food and just sort of, you know, if you look at cookbooks from like the seventies and eighties, it really does paint a picture about where we were in the food industry. So I like getting them as gifts. I also like giving them as gifts because I think that they can be really important tools for, um, for people that are starting out or, or expanding their horizons. I know I gave my, my future sister-in-law a, uh, a book on slow cooking paleo meals because she's paleo and she loves to use a crock pot. And I think that that was a really good way to sort of help, you know, expand her horizons on what is possible using that medium. My concern though is, and, 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 I've, and I've read this recently, and I don't know how true this is, is that cookbooks are coming, or they're going out of vogue and people aren't necessarily giving you know, hardbound physical books anymore. What they're doing is they're giving digital subscriptions to maybe online um, archives. And my question to you is, Mike, do you think that a book is a good idea? And more importantly, do you think that, you know, we're moving in a direction where cookbooks could become somewhat, you know, out of date or, 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 or not, not as valuable as they used to be? Yeah, I, I think, I think what you're seeing here, uh, you know, it's not just, it's not just cookbooks. It, you know, any book for in in that matter um, is kind of battling with this idea of, uh, of 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 media and 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 the new media's that are available now. And and I think they can work in conjunction with one another. Um, personally, I, I'm like you. I love uh, you know a nice you know hard covered uh, cookbook with just the feel of the pages uh, and the vivid images um, that just kind of pop off of that uh, that cookbook. Um, and I, I actually like, you know, I'll go into looking for some vintage style cookbooks too. So you can look at the past. They are really a window into uh, time and place uh, in the culinary world. So, um, and they just provide a whole host of inspiration. So I like that, uh, that feel of, uh, of, of that cookbook. So, you know, personally, uh, I think it's, you know, it's really going to, um, you know, be up to the individual. There's going to be some uh, digital natives. Uh, that are much more comfortable with the digital version, uh, and um, you know maybe they don't necessarily know what they're uh, what they're missing uh, with that uh, with that hard copy uh, cookbook. Um, but uh, you know I, I wouldn't just just count one versus the other. Uh, I think the most important uh, piece of this is that you're engaging uh, this type of media, right? Uh, whether it comes from a hard copy. Um, uh, cookbook or it's a digital version that you can look on the screen or you're getting your recipes from uh, from the internet you know recipes to me are all about you know gaining inspiration um, so you take the inspiration from those recipes and then you try to re you can either recreate them as is uh, or you can add your own little twist um, uh, to those uh, to those recipes uh, uh -huh. as well so and I think anything that inspires people to, you know, get back into the kitchen um, and explore and experiment and really uh, move the craft uh, for them in a new direction uh, and learn and continuously push it uh, is, uh, is, is definitely something you want to continuously engage in. So uh, across the board, really, it doesn't matter. Even if you're not, uh, you know, a chef and you're just an at-home uh, cook, uh, you know, this is a way of expanding your uh, culinary knowledge as well and increasing your repertoire uh, in producing family meals. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, personally, love the hard copy. I love uh, some of the, you know, uh, old-time uh, cookbooks. You know, one of my favorites still, you know, La Technique. Uh, so by Jack Capen, absolutely amazing. Um, I go back to it every now and then. Uh, and I just love the feel of, the tactile feel of opening up 
uh, that 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 cookbook. So on that, and, and and again, I think that you know, going back to our theme about gifts for people um, this holiday season, I think one of the best ways, if you are taking that approach and you want to give someone a more digital cookbook. Um, I know our friends at the uh, the Jacques Pepin Foundation have an amazing video um, cookbook. They have three series now, and this has some of the most world-renowned chefs uh, out there, Daniel Balud, uh, Andrew Zimmerman. They're cooking recipes um, in this video library if you become a member and join. So I think that anyone who's looking for a, a sort of a digital cookbook uh, gift for someone this year should look at the Jacques Pepin Foundation because they have some amazing um, information and some amazing resources and gifts that you can provide people uh, this holiday season if you wanted to go outside the, the traditional sort of bound book, which I think is always a, a, a classic on, on, on our end. Yeah, and I, I think too, uh, along those same lines is, uh... You know, even just sharing like the old time recipe cards, you know, family recipes that yes. get handed down, you know, the holiday season is all about sharing. Um, so, and, you know, you, you can share a recipe card and, and keep that, keep those uh, family traditions alive and explore, you know, new ones uh, with friends. So, and I think that's something that's, uh, you know, gets somewhat lost, um, you know, and uh, I'd love to see that uh, come back in some way, shape or form. And I, I know we're probably not going to bring back the old, uh, you know, recipe card itself. But even if that's just a digital uh, online recipe, um, a blog, whatever it might be, uh, there's a number of different ways to kind of share those uh, those experiences with, uh, with one another. And I, I think it's so uh, powerful, uh, especially around the holidays. Like I could not agree more. So the holiday season, I mean, gift giving is one of my favorite things to do. Obviously, anything associated with food, I love to share because I like to see other people become more immersed in cooking. Um, obviously, Mike, you and I, I mean, this is in our DNA, but it, it, it isn't for everyone. So it's always great to inspire someone to, you know, pick up a knife and to do co more cooking from home and, and, and so on more scratch cooking. I think it's a really inspiring thing for, for us chefs to see other people do that. There has been some challenges um, in the news recently about being able to get gifts in time for the holiday season, you know, from inflation to supply chain management. Um, and I think that what's happening is, and I've seen this on my end, is I'm actually paying slightly more to get things on time because I'm a little bit spooked, right? I'm really worried. Oh my God, I have to spend more money either on shipping or just to buy something to make sure it gets here. What are your thoughts on, on, on where we stand in this whole, you know, sort of crisis of supply chain when it comes to the holiday season, kitchen gifts, where do they stand? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think, uh, I, I, I think you're exactly right. So, you know, the supply chain has seen a number of challenges you know, both from, uh, you know, gifts, manufacturing, uh, and then delivery, um, and then also in the form of food. So the, the food system uh, and that complex supply chain has also seen uh, its own share of challenges. Uh, so, uh, and that's something that's going to, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, I think we're already starting to see it uh, increase the, the, the cost of uh, some of these goods, not everything, right? Uh, but some of these goods are definitely going to see a price uh, increase. Um, and some of the food uh, that we prepare for the holiday, uh, for the holiday meal is also going to have uh, uh, a price increase. I mean, I read uh, in uh, the Atlantic, uh, the average percent increase 
uh, for the holiday grocery bill was up about 5% oh my God. Uh, on average. Um, so, and, you know, depending on where you are, uh, that may not be, you know, a huge increase that's going to break your bank. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're at the lower income level, um, then this could really hit you hard. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know they, they mentioned in this article, um, you know, the lowest income, about one fifth of uh, households spent about 36 uh, percent of their post-tax income on food. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so that's a significant increase. So I, I do think, you know, uh, you have to get a little savvy uh, yeah. in trying to control costs uh, as much as possible. And if that means shopping, you know, earlier um, to make sure that uh, maybe you're not paying the premium price for, you know, a one day or two day delivery. Um, but you, you know, so you're not waiting for the last minute. Um, you know, that, that definitely can help, I think, in some degree. Uh, and then also getting creative, uh, right? So, you know, maybe we look back to, you know, actually making and crafting uh, some of our own uh, unique uh, gifts, you know, whether it be, you know, pickling some surplus uh, eggs or whatever it might be, or, you know, um, you know, making some treats uh, for, uh, for, for family and friends. Um, you know, I, I think it's an opportunity to kind of get back to some of those, some of those yep. roots and really discover, you know, that true meaning of, of, of the holiday season and just, you know, sharing. Yeah. Cause if you're hosting, I mean, especially it depends. I mean, my family is huge. And if you're hosting, that is a significant like impact on your budget. It's huge costs that can go into, that can really hit your wallet. So, you know, one thing we're doing this year, and it's, it's a combination of, uh, of the supply chain and the increase in costs, but it's also just the fact that we have the new babies and, and, we're, and we're kind of stressed for time is we are bringing people into our house and we are hosting. But what we're doing is we're bringing back the good old fashioned Christmas potluck. And we're just saying that everyone in the family takes a little bit in, on themselves and brings something that fits into, you know, a certain criteria, which is in our case, something that's you know easy to prepare and easy to clean. Cause you know, that's our, those are our big, uh, you know, obstacles right now. But um, I think that people should be creative with not only going to recipes. I like your idea of, of going back and looking at ways to more, maybe, you know, resurge some things that maybe are cost effective that do fit into the tr Christmas tradition, but also to sort of reimagine what your Christmas table looks like and who's involved and how people can share the burden. I think that that's a great way to, to help, you know, avoid some of these, you know, price increases. So Good stuff, Mike. And, and on that note, I, I think let's, let's, let's end it for today. But, uh, you know, more to come for sure. And I think that these are good conversations and we're just going to continue this process uh, down the road. So thanks, Mike, for joining and uh, look forward to talking to you uh, in the near future. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And uh, that's, uh, you know, good food for thought, right? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. If you liked the episode, please give us a five-star review on iTunes so that more people have access to the podcast. If you want to reach out to us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Culinary Now Podcast. Leave us some feedback or maybe suggest ideas for future episodes. It is always appreciated. We'll talk to you soon.